I can't tell you how honored I am to be back and to be back in the pulpit. This is such a great congregation with which to work, and you have treated my family and I so well, and we really appreciate you, appreciate all that you stand for and what you do in the service of the Lord's kingdom. I want to express special appreciation to Brother Ray Weddington. Uh, Brother Ray taught my class as well as preached last Sunday. He, along with Brother Randall Gann and many others in this congregation, are more than capable, faithful gospel preachers, and I appreciate them so much for what they do in this kingdom. This morning's lesson is going to come from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And as you study through this passage of Scripture, you realize that it deals with what I might call some of the most somber and concerning situations of life. It's been my sad privilege, and I say that carefully, to participate in a little over 500 funerals since I've been here. That's a good-sized congregation. And in doing so, I planned on preaching this lesson not realizing several weeks ago how many of you would be personally touched over the past couple of weeks of losing family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. And yet at the same time, I think it's important for us to look at this and understand it as God wants us to understand it. You see, the truth is, since the fall of man, since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, death has been a part of our existence. In Hebrews 9 and verse 27, we learn that it is appointed unto man once to die. God has given that appointment. It's not as if though God somehow wants or wishes that death be a part of this world, in fact, it's because of sin and death that death enters this world. Romans 5, verse 12, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. In fact, if you want to lay the blame for death being in this world, don't put it at God's feet. Put it at the foot of the devil, because he's the one who tempted Eve and Adam to eat of that forbidden fruit. But death holds a certain fear. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was visiting a family and one of the children who happens to be an elder at another congregation here in the area put his arm around me and said, I need to talk with you personally, privately. We walked into another area where there was not anyone. And then he said, I've got a question I want to ask. Why do we fear death? What is it that makes us so afraid of it? And I told him, I said, well, there's at least a couple of reasons, biblical reasons. Most of us are afraid of the unknown. For instance, the first time you may go to the hospital and the doctor says, we're going to put you to sleep for this procedure or for this surgery. The first time they put you to sleep, you're nervous. Am I going to wake up? What's going to happen? First time you may fly on a, a large airplane, you get on that plane and 
those engines tune up and they're ready to take off and there's a great pit in your stomach and, you know, and what's going to happen? We fear the unknown because we don't know exactly everything that's going to be on the other side of the divide. But we also fear what the Bible refers to as the sting of death. In the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 2, John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now pause with me. You think it's not yet been revealed. God's not exactly told us everything that will be on the other side. But he goes on to say, But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Something has been revealed, but not everything has been. So there's a certain fear because of that. But then Hebrew, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 55. O death, where is your sting? Perhaps all of us at some point in our lives have been stung by an insect. Perhaps a wasp, a yellow jacket. And we know the pain that is experienced part of that and when you and I come to the point of death we we anticipate that there will be some difficulty some pain involved with that so yes there is a certain amount of fear of that but I want to direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 and the Hebrew writer captures what I think is an extremely important point Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, there's a fear there, but... Jesus has released us from a great amount of that fear. The devil no longer has this great power that he once had. When Jesus was put in that tomb, came forth from that tomb, he overcame death, and you and I will do the same thing. The devil did not win. The Thessalonians were taught that events like this need not be overwhelming. Now, I'm not suggesting that you and I do not go through a great amount of sorrow and sadness. I'm not minimizing that at all. But what I'm trying to do is to take the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I want us to study it. I want us to appreciate it. I want us to realize there's hope. There's encouragement. In fact, I'd suggest to you there's three things. You will see number one, confidence. Number two, conviction. And number three, comfort. Brother Steve and I talked earlier this week. We discussed the songs. And uh, he said, will you have any suggestion? I said, yes. No tears in heaven. But I said, let's don't sing it like we have tears. Let's sing it like it's something joyful. There's no tears in heaven, no sorrows given. Let's begin as we read chapter 4, verse 13 again. 
But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The unknown, as I've already mentioned, is always a cause for concern. But he said, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to not know. He says, I want you to have some understanding. In Luke 9 and verse 45, But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. I would imagine most of us, to some degree, are a little bit perplexed about what life and death means, and to some degree, we're even almost afraid to ask the question. Sometimes asking the question is what provides the answer. In Romans 11 and verse 25, Paul uses this same phraseology. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Talking about the mystery of the gospel and the preaching of it. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. You see, the truth is, if you and I do not get our knowledge, our understanding from God's Word, what we're going to do is we're going to speculate in our own opinions. That's the reason why the world today, when you start talking about life and death and what's on the other side, you start getting all these movies where you have zombies, you start getting all these shows where people start talking about floating on clouds, and yet when you go to the Bible, you see a much different picture. We don't want to have people speculating on their opinions. We want to hear what God has to say on the subject. So he says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep. The term sleep for death is a euphemism. But it's also a figure, an illustration, or a metaphor, if you will. And it's a perfect one. Because when I lay my head on my pillow at night, my expectation is that when the day comes, I will get up again. When we lay our heads in sleep and death, there is that expectation that we will raise our heads in life. Very interesting usage of the term is found in John chapter 11. This is where Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, the brother of Mary and Martha, had gotten sick. And John records these things he said after that. He had said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. But I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. You see how great of a metaphor the Lord is going to use there in this passage. But he says, I don't want you to sorrow as others who have no hope. Those are some of the very sad words. Sorrow is natural. Even those who know where their loved ones will likely go because of the lives which they have lived and because of the decisions they have made, still have a sorrow. Let me illustrate it to you. 
In John chapter 11, you already know that Jesus says, I'm going to go wake up Lazarus. Jesus knew that before he arrived, Lazarus would have already passed, and he knew that he was going to bring him back to life again. And yet when Jesus walks in and he sees everyone in the audience moved because of Lazarus' passing, the text simply says Jesus wept. Two short words. Jesus wept. Even though you know mentally, spiritually, that your loved one's going to come back again, that doesn't mean you're not going to sorrow. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 12.5, man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Yes, we're the ones mourning the loss of a loved one. But you see, there's a different kind of mourning that occurs for some, and that is those that have no hope. Those who all of their lives have rejected the Lord and said, I don't want to do what God has told me to do, and I am not going to follow God. And we have many millions, perhaps billions of people doing that in this world today. Paul illustrated it in Ephesians 2 and verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Oh, folks, I I don't want to think about living a world where there's no hope. Colossians 1 and verse 5 speaks of the hope that was laid up for you in heaven. That's the hope he's talking about. Yes, there are some people that their future has for them no hope whatsoever. But now, the main heading that I've used for this is confidence. He said, I don't want you to sorrow as others who have no hope. So he's saying, I want you to have some confidence there. But upon what do we base our confidence? What is the source of it? Is it on how righteous I am to say that, okay, God, I am a person who's lived a life so good that you owe me salvation? No, no, no. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. In other words, you look at whatever good that I might have been able to do in this world and it is just like a filthy rag. The best passage I can think of to illustrate this is Deuteronomy 9, verses 5 and 6. The children of Israel had arrived in these hills of Moab. They're ready to cross over the promised land. They're ready to go into the land of Israel. And God wants them to understand, I'm not letting you go in because you're the most righteous people on the earth. He says, it's not because of your righteousness, the uprightness of your heart, that you go in to possess the land because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. None of us should think of the fact that when life is over, I have lived so good that now I deserve heaven. I don't deserve it. That's not where my confidence 
is placed. Our confidence is placed in Jesus' sacrifice. I'd love to spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews discussing this with you, but time will not permit it. I will make reference to the fact that Hebrews 7 and verse 25, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, God saves to the uttermost because of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 23, Let us hold the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. I've got confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus. I've got confidence in the faithfulness of God. 1 John 5 and verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. There is a place for confidence, but not in my righteousness, but in God's faithfulness and Jesus' sacrifice. But you see, after I look at verse 13, then verses 14 through 17, which is what I call the meat of this passage. And it talks about conviction. Let's look at verses 14 through 17. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. With knowledge comes confidence but only if a person is convinced in the promises. You see, I may know intellectually, but do I really believe that? When Peter wrote 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he knew that his time of departure, his decease, was very soon to take place. And yet he's looking and saying, what has God provided for me in the sense of conviction? And he says, his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. You see, if you got an underliner underline exceedingly great and precious promises he said that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust what Jesus says is believe on me hear Paul verse 14 for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again 
Jesus said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You believe. You have that conviction. He said, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. All the premillennialists have gone crazy here. It's not difficult to understand. Because you recognize that if you study your Bibles, what happens at death is, James 2 and verse 28, so as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Whenever you separate the spirit of man from the body, then you have death. But what happens when that takes place? Well, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 says simply, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Oh, there's a difference. The physical part of man, the spiritual part of man. The physical part of man goes back to the dust of the ground. It decays. The spiritual part of man goes to God. We could spend some time talking about the Hadean world of paradise and torments. We could talk about the account of the rich man and Lazarus. But the spirit of man is being kept. And so when Jesus returns, those who sleep in Jesus, their spirits, he's going to bring with him. What about those who are alive and remain to the coming? We're not going to precede them as if somehow the the ones who passed on are going to be second class. No. There's going to be a change take place. Paul described this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment of the twinkling light, the trumpet, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Oh, as you think about it, what a great day that's going to be. Just for a moment, think about it with me. The archangel is going to shout. Not just an angel, the archangel. The trumpet is going to sound. That will be a voice heard around the world. That will be a sound of a trumpet around the world and there will not be any more because that will be the last one. Some of our brethren call this the noisiest passage in the Bible. We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Folks, I want you to think about that great reunion. Think about those of your family, the loved ones that you have, your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, those who are faithful in the Lord, about being caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What a great reunion that will be. 
That's the reason why Paul could write. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. I like verse 1 because the, the context keeps going. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, you could say this body is dissolved or destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What you are exchanging is a broken, crippled, decaying body for one that is perfect. That's the reason why no tears in heaven. No aches, no pains, no sorrow. Which brings us to the third part of this text. Very simple, very short statement in verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. These words. The one that knows God and knows Him well has great confidence, great conviction, resulting in great comfort. That's a settling part of man. You know, I study the Bible and I realize my loved ones are not gone. We're separated for a short time, but they're not gone. There's going to be that great reunion one day. Now, as I prepared this lesson, I always try to ask the question, to whom is he speaking and what's he trying to say? And Obviously, this is to the living. Those who have passed on already know everything about the future, or at least they know where they're at. But those of us who are living here, we need some comfort. We need some encouragement. Because as you move over in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. I began this series of lessons with the idea of wanting to express to this congregation why I appreciate you and why I think this is a congregation that everyone would want to be a part of. There's so many great aspects of this congregation But one thing that I have seen is the confidence, the conviction, and the comfort on the faces of so many of you as you have bid goodbye for a while to your loved ones. You're a people of faith. You got to chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, Comfort the faint-hearted. You do a great job of putting your arms around those who've lost loved ones and saying, we're here with you. We are your spiritual family. We care about you. We want you to know that we'll be with you not only today, but we'll be with you tomorrow. You know, it's great when 
a loved one passes that the physical family surrounds, but I'm going to tell you, the bonds that I have with my spiritual family are a lot stronger than I have with my physical family. And in writing to the Thessalonians, Paul is trying to comfort them. And the comfort that you and I receive from God is immeasurable. The Second Corinthians chapter 1 says that we may comfort one another with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. I was told when you go to Bible training classes, part of your job is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. There's more truth to that than you realize. There's some of you this morning that you're satisfied with who you are and where you are and you probably ought not be. You ought to be a little bit disconcerted, a little bit uncomfortable because of the discussion of this topic. And there's some of you who do need that kind, calm reassurance of your brothers and your sisters. Faithful Christians have so much for which to look forward. I mean, uh, you've got a wonderful future. You don't need to have fear. You need to have faith. And so how are you facing the future? With your fears or with your faith? With your confidence? The purpose of this lesson was to talk about confidence, conviction, and comfort. Why not clear up the fear? If you're living with fear in your life, It's very possible that you're here and you're looking at your life and saying, well, I'm not really a Christian. I have no hope. Let me tell you, there's nothing more important this morning than your soul. Why not step out into the aisle, walk down to the front and say, I want to be a Christian. We will take the time. We will love to take the time to see you baptized into Christ. I wish that I had the words to be able to move you. And there's some of you who are living lives on the edge. That is, you're seeing how close to the world you can become and still hold on to your faith. That's real dangerous. Maybe that you're a Christian and you you look at your life and you know you're not right with God. Let me beg you. Let me plead with you. If you need to correct things like that this morning, would you come while we stand and sing?